Welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. You can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a terrific show for you this week. We're going to talk about Outer Range, which is airing now on Amazon Prime. It's a it's kind of a puzzle box mystery with a mysterious sci-fi hole that opens up in a, in a Montana ranch. A little bit David Lynch, a little bit of Lost, a little bit of its own thing. Chris Lights will be here to talk to me about it. But first, we're going to head into the danger zone with Stephen Garrett, our chief film critic. It's Top Gun Maverick week. Top Gun Maverick has opened the long-awaited sequel to Top Gun. Stephen and I have both seen the movie, and we will be talking about it after this exciting musical interlude. Well, this is Ebert. Do you read me? Copy that. Copy that. I have eyes on a movie review. What What would your nickname be? Oh, my top gun nickname would be Jeopardy. Okay. <laughs> nice. Actually, works really well. Yeah, because as my wife said, she's like, "That's what everybody flying anywhere near your plane would be in." <laughs> With an exclamation point, of course. <laughs> That's true. Jeopardy. Uh, what about you? What, what about you? What would you pick? Wheel of Fortune. That would be my No, I don't know. Right. Fortune. How about Fortune? Fortune. There you go. Anyway, we're, Steven, Steven and I are talking about this, of course, because this is the week of Top Gun Maverick, the Top Gun sequel, which was supposed to come out in the year 2020, 2020, the year of COVID, and finally has appeared in movie theaters. And Steven saw it at the Cannes Film Festival. I saw it at the Alamo Draft House. I think a pattern is developing here. He sees movies in France. I go to the Alamo Draft House in Northwest Austin. And let me tell you, you know, Stephen has a, well, Stephen's review is already up. And this movie is, it's pretty awesome. Right? They stuck the landing, as they say. For sure. Yeah, it worked. They did, yeah, with, without any landing gear, as it turns out. Hey, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's surprisingly effective, you know, and it's it's like it's a legitimate and mostly unforced sequel to the first Top Gun. Yeah, I mean, you actually yeah. believe you actually it's, believe that um, Pete Maverick Mitchell has been sort of cryogenically frozen. <laughs> Tom Tom Cruise sleeps in a vegetable crisper, for, and you know he he he's like hale and hard. I mean, yeah, he's got a middle aged man bod, but he's still top Tom Cruise. Whereas Val Kilmer. The only other surviving member of the cast um, in in the movie itself is like this is dying of cancer and and can't speak, which which makes sense given that you know Val Kilmer can't speak. Right. But then they they fill out the the cast with with they sort of a a new cast of young Top Guns, I think, who are who are very much in the spirit of the old cast of young Top Guns. Eh, I mean, ish, right? They don't really spend that much time fleshing them out. I think they even make a joke about that in the sense that there's that guy Bob whose nickname is Bob, and his whole joke is that he has no personality. They're kind of generic, but, you know, but then then, then they have um, the, the sort of handsome guy who comes in at the end, and um, and then Rooster. Rooster is Goose's son, 
Uh, and I would say that is as, as fleshed out a character as you're going to get in Top Gun. You know, Goose was the Anthony Edwards character, Tom Cruise's best friend, who, who dies uh, tragically um, in the first Top Gun. And now Rooster, I guess, uh, is a, all, all, all family members of that family must be named after poultry. They didn't name him Pheasant. Right. Right. Or like ptarmigan, <laughs> that would have been that would have been a little odd, but yeah, it, or, or chicken. You can't name a pilot chicken. Yeah. Anyway, you know he 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 is you know sort of the second lead, and he has a mustache just like his dad did. The movie is essentially just a it's just a big video game with Tom Cruise in it, essentially. Well, essentially, I mean, you know, I I think what I liked about it also was that I wasn't expecting there to be an actual story about comeuppance about like this is what happens when you're cocky for 30 years like you alienate everybody nobody likes you your relationships never work out and you end up basically living in a flight hangar with all of your baubles in your motorcycle and you're a sad little man you know a sad sad little man who goes faster than any man alive well right but even that is kind of sad like when um you know, that guy Hondo is basically like, ah, oh, you're going to go over Mach 10. Of course you are. And then he does and then blows up the, the plane. You know, I, uh, I appreciated that there was that sense of redemption, that he had to earn redemption in that sense. It's, it was almost like this is his chance to go back to the world of, of the living and find himself a place that is, you know, socialized and compassionate. Right. So the Navy, the Navy brings him out of retirement to lead, lead a mission. I think anyone who's seen the trailer uh, is going to know that. It's a strange uh, mission in that they never name who the enemy is. There's just like a right. like a uranium deposit. Well, it's it's an enrichment laboratory, right? Because they're trying to make nuclear weapons, and they have three weeks until it's you know it's too late to blow it up without there being you know nuclear um, fallout. Right, but that's just that's just an absurd plot. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's a totally absurd plot. I mean, but also like unpack that a little bit more, like. Okay, Iceman insists on bringing back Maverick to teach these pilots how to fly in this insane suicide mission. And John Hamm's character is totally annoyed by it and isn't even like interested in having him be a choice. So like, who are the other choices for people who could lead this? And John Hamm seems annoyed that Tom Cruise is trying to find a way to save everybody's life and bring them back. Which also begs the question, why don't you send a drone or why don't you send a, a, like a heat guided missile or whatever? And just blow it up that way. Why? Why are we playing this game of dogfights? There's something about how low the planes have to fly. I don't know. I guess Luke Skywalker could all has have also led this mission, given that he led a very similar mission to destroy the Death Star, as you point out in your review. Wedge Wedge Antilles could also have done it. They they could have done it. It's just like shooting wom- wombats or whatever. Womp rats. Womp rats. Yeah. Sorry. All right. So look, it's corny. It's silly, but it works. But it works, and the um. The air combat uh, scenes are extremely exciting yeah. and well-made, you know, and really well-directed. You know, it's funny that the guy who directed this, his name is Joseph Kaczynski. And back in a previous incarnation of my career, I was doing um, hacky, uh, like, celebrity profiles for a men's journal and other men's magazines. And I, I interviewed him. I did a little, little mini profile on him. He, was, he came of age in Hollywood as the director of Tron Legacy. Right, right. It was right. a real turkey. But looked great, though. Looked great, and great uh, daft punk music was fantastic. Yeah, so, you know, he didn't write the script. Um, and he didn't, he didn't write this script either. But, boy, and he hasn't really, like, made anything like a, 
super big and successful since then. But boy, this this is going to be a smash, and uh, it, it's a um, a real throwback to classic '80s action movies. Good ones, right? right. Good classic right. '80s action movies. I mean, it is a legitimate sequel to Top. It, it could have, you know, Top. The original Top Gun came out in what, 1986. Yeah. This could have easily come out in 19. 19- 88 except that 30 years have passed but in terms of like it's just vibe and it's music you know well i mean courtesy of them recycling harold Faltermeyer's synth you know his wet synth music you know i mean i think that was to me the, the most galling thing was that literally the opening five minutes is exactly the same as the opening five minutes of the of the first movie you know right which i guess is maybe like a tongue-in-cheek homage yes but also like just like kind of pandering fan service yeah it's pandering fan service but it also just kind of it's not, when was the last time you saw top gun it just kind of eases you in right it's like okay <laughs> sure does it's like oh, oh okay it's, it's almost like a like like a previously on you know i mean it's also it's funny like we talked about star wars like you know when i was when i was dinging it for having basically the opening credits are exactly the same with the same music i was like hmm, that sounds familiar like star wars did that every goddamn time yeah, that's right um, so, you know, I, I didn't mind it. You know, I didn't mind it in general. Also, I thought, you know, they they give Tom Cruise a love interest, uh, just like they did in the first movie. But this is a very, you know, it's an age appropriate love interest played by Jennifer Connelly. Yeah. Who looks tremendous. She does, but also looks age appropriate tremendous. She doesn't like, you know, she's not trying to be anything other than late 50s. She's a middle aged woman with a, with a teenage daughter. You know, she's not, she's beautiful, but she's not overly sexualized, you know, though. And the other, there's only one other female character, a pilot named Phoenix, who's also like very attractive, but she's just one of the boys, right? But she, yeah, well, she's a smurfette, isn't she? I mean, she's the one girl in, in the hundred boys surrounding her, you know, who's the token, token girl, like Bob, the token nerd, you know? Like Bob. I was thinking Bob is the one you're going to kill, but they didn't kill Bob. <laughs> maybe, or maybe not. We don't want to spoil it. Bob dies in the end. So, <laughs> Bob, Bob dies. He's the red-shirted Star Trek guy, right? Isn't it the red-shirted guy? No, right, yeah, exactly. No, it's um, <laughs> he's actually. There's a third one. Top Gun Bob is is, is going to be. <laughs> That'll be the next one. That's going to be the, the next. He's the he's the breakout character. I don't think there will be any more of these, but I'll I'll be damned if I wasn't satisfied with this this picture. It's very satisfying. It's very, you know, it, it actually, I have to say, it is a smart balance between pandering, fan service, and actually trying to find a real through line that develops, continues to develop the characters from the first film in a smart way that feels satisfying, like you're saying. You know, it really, they did a great job. They really did. I, you, I, you almost don't want them to, you almost don't want to say it, but but it's true. I, it's very hard to do this well and very easy to slapdash it and cash in or cash out rather and they clearly put a little uh, you know care and time and attention into it so it's it's you know it's really um, surprisingly satisfying yep agreed i wish it well uh and uh we will talk to oh, you oh yeah hey, should we should we throw in the fact that this may very well be the first hundred million dollar opening weekend of tom cruise's 40-year career how crazy is that he's never had a movie open to more than 100 million which is of course like the standard minimum for a a big hit. Well, I mean, there's been a lot of like love for Tom Cruise uh, in, in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, he's obviously a very w- uh, we- weird man uh, who is the <laughs> symbol of, of the Earth's creepiest religion. But no one has been a bigger cheerleader of movies 
than Tom Cruise. You know, yeah. there was that whole deal where he was like um, on opening night of Tenet. You know, remember how controversial it was that they were releasing. That's right. In the movie theaters, I, I was. And he went to a movie theater. There, he was there in London, like cheering it on, and you know, you know, God bless him. I'm, I, I, I respect him for that because there was there was a moment there where it really looked like people were, were never going to go to the movies again. And, you know, he, yeah. in fact, in the, when I saw it at the Alamo, there was a pre-recorded message from Tom Cruise saying, thank you for coming to the movies. We appreciate it. We, <laughs> you know? Saying, Neil, thank you for coming to the Alamo draft. No, he wasn't speaking, I mean, unless I hallucinated it and he was actually speaking. <laughs> no, it was just a pre-recorded message. But, you know, again, like, you know, it was really important to me even in 2020 that people would continue to go to the movies and I continued to go to the movies and uh, maybe that campaign, he, he was planting the seeds so he could finally get his hundred million dollar uh, <laughs> hit. But maybe, maybe he deserves it. I don't know. Hey man, he is such a great ambassador and he really is. I mean, it, this Top Gun Maverick is a great, great, it's the reason why you go back to movie theaters to see it on a big screen with an audience. It, it's really is such fun. It's morning in America, Stephen. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, the eighties. God bless. You know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like the best part, bar none for me of the original Top Gun was take my breath away. That Berlin song is great. I mean, that is such an anthemic eighties song. And the fact that there was some Lady Gaga song and she's in the opening credits credited as contributing music. And maybe it was in the end credits. I don't know. Like, do you remember a Lady Gaga song? No, they should have just played it again. You know what? Let's play it right now. Here's Take Your Breath Away by Berlin. <laughs> All right, good talk, Russ. Talk to you soon. Watch it in slow motion as you turn around say, Take my breath We are reaching the summer TV season. It used to be known as summer movie season, but a lot of it has moved towards TV. We have a new season of Stranger Things and a new Star Wars show on Disney Plus, uh, some Marvel shows coming up. But we'll be talking about all of that on this podcast in future weeks. But we're still we're kind of catching up still with what happened in the spring. And we had an article this week about the show Outer Range, which airs on Amazon Prime and stars Josh Brolin. And Chris Lights made his book and film Globe debut writing about it and joins me now to talk about Outer Range. Hello, Chris. Hello, Neil. How are you? I am well. So um, Outer Range, it's a sci-fi show, but it's kind of one of these like intellectual sci-fi shows. Like It's like a pu- kind of puzzle boxy, right? I mean, Yeah, it has that element for sure. But I think it's – I'm not invested in the puzzle box in the way I was with Lost. I actually like some of the other stuff that's going on. So I'm expecting that – like at the end of the season, I didn't feel cheated on the, the way I did it at the end of Lost, you know, where it was like, well, we just decided when magic happened and a wizard did it. Yeah, the end of Lost – well, Lost was one of the grandest ripoffs in pop culture history. Yeah, yeah. This is not that though. So the premise here is that Josh Brolin plays – kind of a, a cowboy patriarch, modern day cowboy patriarch and right. uh, a giant sinkhole of sorts 
uh, some sort of portal type thing opens up on his ranch. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the general premise. He's, he's a, uh, old school cowboy and, um, this giant void opens on his, uh, West pasture at the same time that his, uh, one of his sons accidentally kills. I mean, it's a, it's a fight, so it's technically probably like a manslaughter charge, but he kills uh, a rival rancher, who says something about his missing wife and he just goes off. They're both drunk and kills him in a fight. So they're trying to, they're trying to cover up this murder. And then at the same time, there's this giant hole. And in the first episode, Josh Brolin's, his idea is, well, if there's a giant hole that looks to be bottomless, I'm just going to throw the body in there. And then things sort of take off from there. That sounds like to me, like a good narrative jumping off point, but perhaps a mistake on the part of Josh Brolin's character. It, it is. It is a mistake. Although what's what's interesting is that Josh Brolin's character has a deeper connection to this whole and um, things transpire as the episodes go on. And you realize that. The whole almost seems to have a will of its own. It might be sentient, it might not be, but it's operating on a level that's that's not just, I would say, you know, physics or you know, even fringe physics. The the director or the show's creator said something about everything in the show is a terrestrial mystery. So it's not aliens, right? Yeah, it's not aliens, which is good because I don't think we need another you know, aliens drop by the good old American family show right now. And so it's, 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 it's more interesting and the characters are layered and they're odd and there's this Lynchian quality to it. Yeah. I mean, you, you, have a, you obviously had a great fondness for it. I mean, you know, all you have to say is like, is Lynchian and I'm at least vaguely intrigued. I have not seen anything that, that I think tried to do Lynch and got any part of it as well as this on TV and probably since like Wild Palms. Do you remember Wild Palms? Of course. I think Oliver Stone tuned into some of that. Um, it's really hard to do. And he's not, you know, it's it's not like they're trying to rip off Lynch, but there are nods to Lynch and there's that, there's that odd quality. And there's definitely the deconstruction of small town America, the American family, you know, and, and the whole cowboy mythos and the mythos of the West and the fact that, you know, everything there is stolen land and the uh, the main investigator is the sheriff and, and she's a Native American. And later in the season, she has some connections to her Native American past in a pretty deep way. I, I think they've treated it well and they've treated the audience in a way that most shows don't. They treated the audience as if, you know, the audience was intelligent enough to make inferences and look at symbolism and not be spoon fed a jelly bean trail of here's where everything's going. Here's what, here's every clear motivation of the character. They're complex. They don't always act in logical ways, just like, you know, people. And I like that. I appreciate that. So, you know, one, I mean, obviously there's a lot of elements to let's say David Lynch, you know, there's the surrealism, there's the deconstruction of, of narrative cliches and of small town America, Hollywood conventions. Does Outer Range have any of that sort of signature off-kilter humor? Yes. Yeah, absolutely it does. I mean, there's this – there's uh, Noah Reed from Schitt's Creek. He breaks out in a song 
at different points during the series. And this is it's very odd and it's 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 almost kind of disturbing. But it also the, the lyrics have meaning deeper than than him just, you know, doing weird stuff. And then his father, played by Will Patton, is just all kinds of odd. He, he's he's like this rancher that used to collect this weird erotic art. And he knows something's going on out in that West Pasture. And he has like he wants to find this connection to it. There's another guy who has like a pet raven or i think it's raven or a crow and says mysterious stuff he's kind of he comes off like the log lady there's just weird stuff that's funny and you know at certain points it's dramatic and you know at other points they're going totally for the artifice of it just like lynch did there are side mysteries outside of the hole is what you're saying there's other plans there's a missing daughter um there's stuff about josh brolin's past that gets revealed later that you don't know um you know everybody's got some secrets going on much like in, in Twin Peaks where the small town was full of secrets, but they seem to have a mystical bent to them. I'm reminded of like the red room. I mean, there's no equivalent here to the red room, but that sort of thing where weird crap happens, but it actually means something on some level. Chris, have you ever heard of something called the white lodge? Yes. Yes. That's a, that's, yes. Yeah. That's a Twin Peaks reference. Yes. Deep, deep Twin Peaks cut. Yeah, yeah. The last Lynch movie. Speaking of, we, and I never talked about this on the show. I, I, I went to see Inland Empire, which was like a kind of a obscure David Lynch like video project that he's turned into a movie. I went to see that at our local film society. Man, was that a that a mind bender? I really liked it. It's, I mean, it's deeply odd and maybe too long, but I would say about Inland Empire, there's maybe one to three too many shots of Laura Dern crying and then looking into a mirror and then she's another version of her. Right. But I mean, God, that, that thing on Hollywood Boulevard at the end where there was that long monologue about the monkey who, sh- who shits everywhere. And I'm just like, you know, just when you thought the movie was over, I'm like, yeah. that was very much, it felt like him just doing what he wanted. This show has some of that. It's, I mean, there's more of a narrative structure, I'd say, than Twin Peaks. But it does have that sense that you're in for an experience. You're not necessarily there to check boxes. I think modern audiences have in some ways gotten both dumber and smarter about how TV and narrative in general is constructed. And you'll see a lot of people on forums and stuff talk about character arcs and pacing and what's going on in the writer's room and and whatever. And I think that's good to a point, but it's also constructed this idea of a perfect show. And, you know, if, if, if something's not timed perfectly well and then the beats don't happen when everybody thinks they should, they, they get really pissy about shows. And I've noticed critics doing that recently. Now, granted, there's a lot of shows out there, so there's room to toss things out. And there are a lot of obvious mistakes, a lot of obvious narrative yes, mistakes. Yes, and there's also a lot of obvious – yeah, there's a lot of obvious narrative mistakes. I didn't feel watching this show that any of the quote-unquote mistakes were unintentional. I felt like they were put there to jolt the audience out of the doldrum of how pacing usually goes. It's, it's not slow in any way. It's just – you go from one scene to another and you're, you know, you're, you're going from hard drama to like the guy singing, you know, it jumps. And though it feels incongruous at times, I think it works as a juxtaposition. To my mind, it made sense in contemporary American reality, which is inherently insane. 
Agreed. And as you point out, uh, that the, the creator of the show is a playwright, not a TV guy. So he's coming at this from a slightly different angle. Yeah. And you can feel that. You feel that definitely um, in the scripts. He's got a he's got a partner that's a TV guy, you know, so they, they obviously partnered him up with somebody that knows TV. But there's a there's a decided non TV aspect to this. And it's it's refreshing because there's a lot of shows out there that are trying to mix sci fi with something mundane or, you know, over the last five years, God, NBC has probably had like half of them, you know, like manifest in the event and and the characters were never particularly interesting and some of the scenes were never particularly interesting and this at least remains interesting throughout it's imminently watchable there's a great void on amazon prime and it's <laughs> called outer range chris lights wrote about it this week on book and film globe thank you so much for stopping by thank you neil i am the parts Thanks, Chris Lights. Outer Range, now airing on Amazon Prime. And thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about Top Gun Maverick. Thanks to Matthew Schaefer for editing the show every week. And congratulations to he and Megan. You are now parents of a child. I am also a parent of a child. My child is almost 20 years old. So I can offer you, as the as the author of Alternadad, the greatest parenting book of all time, I can offer you lots of advice about parenting. I, I can offer you anything Really, except for money. I don't have, I'm not giving you any money. I don't give anybody any money. But uh, congratulations. Good luck. You're going to need it. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. This is the Book and Film Globe podcast, your one-stop shop for all things entertainment and literary. I will talk to you Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.